You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. My name is uh, Craig, and I am one of the pastors here at Grace Church. And I just want to say it is great to have you with us uh, worshiping today if you're new. If you are new, at the end of the service, if you go out the door and to the right, we have a Connect Center. We'd love to meet you, and we've got a gift for you. So please, uh, please let us have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit. <clears throat> I wasn't here <clears throat> last week, uh, so it's good to be back. I was uh, in North Carolina and I had the opportunity to participate with a church in a marriage conference, uh, teaching at their marriage conference, and then uh, after that, preaching there on a Sunday morning. The church is in Raleigh, uh, actually Apex, which is an area of Raleigh, North Carolina. It's called Cornerstone uh, Fellowship, and they are part of Trinity Fellowship Churches, and so I'm sharing this with you uh, as a way of saying I was able to be uh, with a church that we have begun to form a partnership with uh, in a group of churches called Trinity Fellowship Churches. It was a joy to be with them, really to represent you as a church in some ways, um, just to be with them and, and talking about marriage, which we're talking about this morning as well. And it kind of gives me an opportunity to bridge and say, tomorrow we're having an informational meeting at seven o'clock here. We have a couple deacon uh, candidates we want to put forward to the church and uh, let you know about them. <clears throat> and uh, then we, I'm going to also talk a bit about Trinity Fellowship Churches, give you an update because it's been like almost a three-year journey with them and where we, where we are with them now, which is very positive, very encouraging. It's been, uh, been a great experience. Um, so we're going to give an update on that as well. Well, we're, today we're in a passage on marriage, and I'm calling this the mission of marriage on the margins. And just to review what's been happening in this letter that Peter is writing. He's writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And these new Christians are experiencing resistance for their faith. They're part of this new movement, these people that are following Jesus Christ, and they're finding it hard. They are, they are uh, experiencing persecution, not, not martyrdom at this point, but they are experiencing various kinds of persecution for their faith. And Peter, to these marginalized people, he starts by reminding them of all that God has done for them. It's wonderful. He reminds them that God has caused them to be born again and this sort of stuff. And then he talks to them about how do you live? How do you live in a culture where you are on the margins? And here's the relevant question that we're trying to answer that the book really seeks to answer in its context. How do you respond when you hold the minority position in a hostile culture? Or in their situation, when you hold the extreme minority position in a hostile culture. So what are you supposed to do? And in many places, uh, many Christians, depending on where you live, especially in the U.S., but are, are sensing more and more uh, a stronger opposition to our faith. And that's why we have uh, taken on this study, because we want to see how does, when people live in that environment, how, how does the New Testament say you are to live? And we saw last week in chapter 2, uh, verse 12, this verse, which really is a calling for us. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, and it, it means unbelievers there. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So he's saying, hey, if you're not in the mainstream of the culture, uh, perhaps in, in all the various aspects of culture, you feel sort of like out of sync with the culture. Well, what you should do is that you should live an honorable, a godly life following Jesus so that others look on and see that. They see your life, and then some of them are going to be converted by your example because he says they will glorify God on the day of his visitation. So, so live this honorable way. Keep your conduct honorable. So the question becomes, what does it mean to keep honorable conduct? And the very next verse he answers it. And friends, it's out of left field. Nobody saw this coming. You're on the margins. You're on the outside. How do you live? Live honorably. Okay, explain that. What is it? The next verse. Be subject for the Lord's authority to every human institution. What? I mean, that that doesn't seem like the natural thing to do. And then he goes through two institutions, and we'll cover the third today. He goes through the institution and says, as citizens, you are to honor others. Ultimately, you are to uh, honor even the emperor. And, and, you know, Caleb made a a point last week, which is very helpful. doesn't mean that uh, you don't stand up for Jesus, and doesn't mean there's not a place to defy civil authority when the authority... Uh, forbids you from doing something that God commands you to do or requires you to do something that God forbids. So there is a place for that, but the general attitude in the way we live most of our lives is to honor authority. And the second authority he looks at is servants and masters. Uh, Maybe in our context, it might be workers and employees and employers or students and teachers might be how we would apply that. And he says, same thing, that you you are to honor them. And then in this third one, he says that you are, he's addresses primarily wives, there's a little bit to husbands as well here, but he says that you uh, are to, uh, this is to affect your marriage as well. So becoming an authentic Christian brings upheaval to our social relationships. These new believers are out of step with their government. Uh, at, at points in various locations, the emperor's actually requiring worship, incense offered up to him in worship, so they are way way out of step with that. They're forbidden from doing that by Jesus. Uh, They may be out of step with their employers or the servant-master relationship in that day. And in chapter 3, we see that there can be a disruption to marriage when one spouse becomes a Christian and the other doesn't. And he addresses wives by far the most here, and I'll, I'll speculate why later. He doesn't tell us why, but I have an idea to, to submit to you anyway. Um, but with them, the challenge here is that it was expected in this day that a wife would always adopt her husband's religion. And so what happens when she hears about Jesus, she believes in Jesus, and yet he still is a polytheist, a pagan worshiping um, all manner of gods? What, what is she supposed to do in that situation? How does she respond? And Peter tells her, tells those wives very simply that her goal is to win him to Jesus by living like Jesus. I'm going to try to be laser focused on everything she's called to do here because it's all tied to Christ. Verse 21 of chapter 2, right before this says, for in this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. To the servants, he said, follow the example of Jesus who suffered for you. And so she is called to win him to Jesus, but the way she will do that is by living like 
Jesus. So let's read these verses. First uh, Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Listen here to God's holy word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, welcome to Grace Church. If, if the church is not on the margins, you start using this language uh, and you are very quickly finding yourself uh, on the margins. But I want to dig into this text and try to help us understand it and apply it. And I want to start with this truth that the text teaches. And he had already said, be subject to rulers, servants be subject to masters. So the be subject language, that's the whole theme. There's a lot of places we could say be subject uh, in all kinds of ways. But this is the first idea, that Christ-centered submission is a convincing witness. Christ-centered submission. This isn't random submission. This isn't just, you know, the old way of doing things in an ignorant, uh, primitive culture. He's tying this all to Jesus as an example. So it's, it's submission in all of these instances including the government, whatever it is, it's always submission to Jesus first. And if the other person hinders our submission to Jesus, then we can't submit to them because we have to submit to Jesus. So it's a Christ-centered submission. It's about following him. And he says that it's a convincing witness. He starts with, likewise, be subject. Well, where does the likewise point? Well, it points to what we already read, verse 12. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. So live in a way that they're going to slander you and say you're evil, but when they look at your life, they're going to say, well, no, that's, there's something compelling there. And same with uh, servants and uh, masters. And verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So this is what he is talking about. Now, It's sad, it's more than sad, it's grievous that the church, particularly the conservative church, which we're theologically, biblically conservative, as a church means we believe what the scripture teaches, when I say that, that's what I mean, biblically conservative, Um, but it's sad that even in the conservative church, these verses and the verses that are similar, except they talk a lot more to husbands in Ephesians 5, that those have been misused at points. And we want to say that really at the outset because it's possible someone even in the room has heard that misused. Um, And so I want to start by saying what they don't mean. As Caleb pointed out last week, we're called to submit, but submission to humans is never absolute and it's never unqualified. I mean, you see in the New Testament, the disciples saying to to the authorities, 
when they were told you cannot preach the gospel, they said, we have to obey Jesus and not you. So, so there, there's no calling to submission to a human that is ever absolute, without exception, and unqualified. In the case of marriage, and thinking about these wives in particular whose husbands were not believers, in the case of marriage, if the husband asks the wife, who is a Christian, not to follow Jesus, which would have been a very real possibility, more like a likely scenario that in this context, um, she must deny that request. Graciously, respectfully, but she must deny that. If he ever asks her to sin in any way, a husband asks a wife to sin, she must graciously deny that request. If he ever asks her to do something that Jesus uh, forbids her to do, she must deny that. If, if he ever asks her not to do something that Jesus requires, she must deny that request. The passage on submission also does not require wives to submit to domestic abuse. It's, that is not what is going on here. Matter of fact, even in the day, even in this pagan culture, um, there, there, were, there was recourse for wives. That was often uh, viewed as, that, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't even acceptable in many circles there. And, and uh, at the end, Peter's very clear that wives are to, uh, that husbands are to live with wives in an understanding way. So even there, he implies that no husband has that kind of freedom to act in that sort of sinful way. God also has provided delegated authorities. So if there is a case of domestic abuse, there are authorities, civil authorities, uh, to which that is to be reported, who step in and act or to, or to act with justice to protect the woman and punish the husband in that context. And the church is there to support her as well. So this is not, and to protect her, this is not a call to accept uh, any kind of domestic abuse. Um, if the husband, the unbelieving husband here, is out having sex with other people, she is given a biblical recourse in that context. She's not called to um, submit to an, you know, someone who's committing adultery in that way uh, in the marriage. So God does provide a recourse for her if he is acting in that way. So there are some biblical exceptions. I'm, I'm mentioning some. Those are all exceptions. And it's important to start there. But it's also important to acknowledge that we don't want to mute the commands of Scripture because of abuses or exceptions. When I hear what the Word of God has to say, and we don't want to sort of dull the point because it does have an edge. This whole chapter has an edge to it that pierces our heart, and we have to wrestle with it a little bit. Caleb didn't put button everything up and put a bow on it last week. I listened to his message, and I appreciated that because it calls us to wrestle with this text. I just don't want you wrestling with any of those thoughts, that this is not about abuse. This is not about the husband can do whatever he wants. This is not about the husband can require the wife to sin or something like this. Absolutely not. So we want to be clear about that. But making that clear, let's just acknowledge that... Uh, that she is called to be respectful and have pure conduct towards him even if he is undeserving of it. Even if he is undeserving of it. She's not inferior. It's not a statement that she's inferior. Very clearly, she's spiritually superior to him. Uh, she's the one who sees things clearly. She's the follower of Jesus. She has chosen the wise path. 
He's the fool. It is the fool who says in his heart there is no God. So if he is not a believer in Jesus and she is, she's obviously not inferior. It's rather a calling for her to use her freedom in Christ for the glory of Christ by obeying Christ and submitting to her husband, even an unbelieving husband. Why is that the calling? Well, look at it. Wives be subject to your own husbands. It's not a statement about uh, submitting to men, but to her own husband. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So what he's saying is that through a, your respectful and pure conduct, it can have an effect and a, a witness in an unusual, compelling way to him. The whole passage of this all chapter 2 and 3 is all about Christians following Jesus so that others see our good works and ultimately glorify God. That there's something about our lives that is refreshing, that is different, that is a light in the darkness. And that's not only true for unbelievers in society to look on at Christians, but here it's an unbeliever in the home looking on to Christians. Now certainly the unbelieving husband needs to hear the gospel. She should explain who Jesus is, what he did, why she believes how it makes a difference in her life. Certainly, she is to give a verbal witness, but the passage teaches that it will not sort of be a repetition of stating the gospel facts that will soften his heart. What will change him is his eyes will be opened when he sees the gospel's dynamic, life-changing effect on her heart. As she looks like Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate example of the one who submitted his life. As, she looks, as he looks at the Christ-like example of her submission, he will see Christ in her. This kind of love and respect from her, this will be her primary apologetic to the gospel. He may have all kinds of reasons he doesn't believe in Jesus, but when he sees she was like this and now she's like this, it will start with a curiosity. Why is she like this? She's changed. It may lead to an inquiry, and even a faith and conversion on his part. As she serves her husband and affirms his leadership, even when he doesn't believe in Jesus, he will come away having no natural explanation for her actions because he knows that she believes in a different God, and yet she is affirming of him as a person, as an image bearer, as her husband. And valuing him. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't indicate that she's inferior. Rather, she is taking her freedom in Christ and joyfully, willingly, voluntarily uh, submitting to him, serving him. You know, and I thought about, when I was reading this, I thought about a, a passage that really points to this. I thought about uh, of, of serving another to demonstrate, really, the glory of God. I thought about the example of Jesus. You remember the scene in the upper room where Jesus gets on his knees, gets a towel and a basin, and washes the disciples' feet. Let me ask you this. Is Jesus inferior to the disciples in that moment? No, he is God in the flesh. He spoke all things to, into existence. But he has come, and now he has humbled himself not a statement that his value, his dignity, his worth, that, by, that he is less. No, he's God. 
But he kneels before them and he serves them in a humble way. He humbles himself before them, respects them as in a way, and, and serves them. And what was the effect? They're like, whoa, 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 what's this? They were deeply affected. What are you doing? They were deeply affected by his service. It, it revealed the grace of God, the humility of the Savior in a way that serving another uh, always does. This challenging calling to submission is easier to understand when we focus on the example of Jesus. His submission was always dignified. His submission always emanated from a place of strength and love. <clears throat> his submission was always voluntary, and his submission was always for the glory of his Father, to demonstrate his love for others. I love the way commentator William Harrell comments on this in his commentary on 1 Peter. This is what he says. <clears throat> Christian submission is not degrading and groveling, but is rather a voluntary fruit of holy love. And I might add to his quote, I'm sure he's fine with it. Um, Christian submission is not degrading and groveling for all submission. It applies in marriage here, but in all submission, the citizens, whatever. Christian submission is not degrading and groveling, but is rather a voluntary fruit of holy love for Jesus. It's out of our love for the Lord that we willingly act in this way. And in this case, it's because this is a convincing witness. It's because she loves her husband enough that she wants to see him know Jesus as she does and doesn't want to be a hindrance, but wants to be a blessing. And so her conduct can be a blessing to him in, in that. Now, I realize it's a lot easier for me to stand here and teach this than it is for you as a wife, if your husband's not a Christian, to live this out on a daily basis. So I understand me teaching this costs me nothing. Oh, there's a minor social risk to saying this stuff, I suppose. But it's nothing like what you experience, the difficulty living with an unbelieving husband. And I just want you to know that as a church, if you're in that role, this is your family, and we want to support you, and we want to help you. Uh, we want to pray for you, and we want to supplement your witness to your husband. In other words, we want your unbelieving husband to say, not only has something happened in my wife, but she's connected to this whole group of people that love one another. A church where there's actually people submit to one another in the church, where people serve one another. We want to help support you in your witness. And I want you to know that my heart goes out to you because I grew up in a home like yours. I grew up in a home with a believing mom and a dad who, my mom's with the Lord, but a dad who's yet to believe. You know, even though he saw a compelling witness, he's yet to believe, but his story's not over yet either. I'm trusting that he, he will believe before he dies. But I want to encourage you, I, I'm, I'm part of a family with four kids raised by a mom who sought to live out the challenge of this text. And graciously, God was very good to her. All four of their kids, I'm one of the four, all, all of us as adults know the Lord and are walking with the Lord. And I just want to say that's a testimony to the faithfulness of God and a promise that God will be faithful to you in your context. Wherever you are, God will be faithful to you. I know it's easy for me to say, but I feel like I do have a behind the scenes. I haven't lived it, 
but I have a behind-the-scenes view of how difficult this can be, and I want you to know you have our support as a church. Now, we should note that while the context here may focus on wives with unbelieving husbands, the principle, the same principle applies for wives who have believing husbands. So this applies to all believing or unbelieving. And the the reason I say that is two reasons. One is in the text. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Okay, some do not obey, but some do. What does that mean? He's writing to wives. Some of them have unbelieving husbands. Some of them have believing husbands. So you're not trying to win your believing husband to Jesus, but you are to still live out this sort of orientation of your heart towards him. And the other reason I say that is because Ephesians 5, where Paul writes about marriage, he has a similar command to wives. He has a similar command to husbands. Actually, it's a, I think it's a sharper, more challenging command to husbands because he fleshes it out in Ephesians 5 in a way that Peter doesn't hear to husbands. But there he says the same thing, but he gives the reason that she is to respond with respect to her husband and submission to her husband He's to love her as Christ loved the church because their marriage is to be a picture of Jesus in the church. So they're, they're witnessed as a Christian husband, Christian wife, their marriage is to represent Jesus as a witness. In her marriage, she is to represent Jesus as a witness to her unbelieving husband. When both are believers, the way they interact, dying to themselves, sacrificing for the other, preferring the other, they are uh, living like Jesus, they are a witness that demonstrates the work of Christ and the church. And I know this language, when we read it, it seems so strong. It seems so out of sorts with our culture. But all we have to do is read the Gospels and realize everything Peter's saying here is all over the Gospels. If you want to follow me, Jesus says, take up a cross and die to yourself. Uh, If people curse you, bless them. Your enemies love them. It's possible that an unbelieving husband could posture himself as an enemy to his wife. And she is to love him. Not not with, you know, she has the exceptions that I mentioned earlier. But putting those aside, if he's an unbeliever and he postures himself as an enemy, mocking her faith, ignoring her because she follows Jesus, whatever he may, her response is still to live like Jesus. In the workplace, wherever we are, in our country, in our nation, where in whatever relationships we have, we're to live like Jesus. Well, how does she do this? What does this look like to submit? The, the big point here is it doesn't say. I was reading a commentator who just pointed this out. Her name is Karen Jobes, and she's written probably the best um, scholarly commentary on First Peter. Everybody I read quotes her, so I'm just reading her direct, so I don't Uh, She's very good. And she writes this, Peter wisely did not spell out in specific terms what it means for a Christian wife to submit to her husband or for a Christian husband to live considerately with his wife. The apostle laid down the principles and then left the details to be worked out between the spouses. The church today is right to uphold a biblical order within marriage that mirrors the relationship of Christ and his church. But it should also follow Peter's wisdom and refrain from trying to specify what that must look like in every case. In other words, where I think this teaching practically goes off the rails is when the guy standing up here says, this is exactly what you are to do as a wife and what you are to do as a husband with all kinds of 
specific. So then, then marriage becomes this paint by numbers or connect the dots or whatever the analogy is. Um, it's, it's, I think, better to say, what is the impact? What is the calling? What is the orientation of my heart? How am I to follow Jesus? And then flesh that out in specific ways in your own marriage. And it could look different in different marriages. So, for instance, I would leave you, whether your husband's a Christian or not, ladies, I would leave you some questions that you could ask. Here would be one. As a free woman in Christ, how can I voluntarily and joyfully affirm my husband's leadership? in the relationship. How can I do that? That's what Jesus does. How can I live like him? What, is, what does that mean to affirm his lead in our relationship? Or how can I demonstrate respect? Could be different in different marriages. Could be different with a believing husband and unbelieving, but, but still, how can I demonstrate respect? That's what Peter talks about here. Here's one. How can I conduct myself purely, because that's what he says, your, your pure conduct, how can I conduct myself purely knowing I'm always a witness to my husband if your husband's an unbeliever? What does that look like? Here's a question I'm going to add that's not in this text. The words aren't in this text, but I'm going to give you a different text. Here's a category I think would be very helpful if your husband's not a believer, and if he is, would be, how can I do him good? Uh, Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 12 says this about wives. It says... An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of his life. She does him good and not harm. So what can I do that would be good for my husband? It may, if he's an unbeliever, it may not be everything always what he would want. In some situations, doing him good could look different. But it's how can I act for his well-being, his good, and how can I avoid acting in any way that would harm him? I think those are good questions that allow you to sort of, uh, sort of put feet to what he says here. Well, let me ask you this. What, what do you do if you failed? Everybody's failed. Everybody has failed in terms of honoring authorities in our heart, honoring others, honoring our peers in our heart, We've all failed in these areas. And one of the most powerful demonstrations, when he says, when he sees your pure conduct, one of the most powerful demonstrations of pure conduct is to humble ourselves, acknowledge our sin, and ask forgiveness. That is powerful. You're not going to be perfect. Nobody is but Jesus. No one is. But to confess and repent, the grace of God shines through that humility uh, in an inc incredible way. I can imagine this context, the husband, the wife coming and asking forgiveness. And the husband saying, what? I, just not even knowing how to respond to that. Because she acted in some way that didn't respect him as a person or as her husband. And, and now she's asking forgiveness for that? And he's saying, okay, something's different. But something is different if she didn't do that before. Same principle obviously applies for husbands. Whether your wife's a Christian or not a Christian, the same applies. That pure conduct is not being a perfect husband. That's impossible. It's not always loving your wife sacrificially. That's impossible. But it's when you fail acknowledging that. That's pure conduct that would affect your wife if she's an unbeliever or would encourage your 
wife if she is a Christian. Okay, in verses 3 and 4, Peter drives home this pure conduct a little bit more uh, clearly. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God in God's sight is very precious. Well, here's another text that I think has probably been misused by some churches, some conservative uh, churches have misused this one. Can we just acknowledge on the outside, he is not forbidding a certain hairstyle in and of itself, and he's not forbidding uh, wearing gold. That is a lazy and a legalistic reading of the text, because if he's forbidding certain hairstyles and he is forbidding wearing on of gold, he's also forbidding wearing clothing. Because that's the third category. He says, don't let your adornment be the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. That's, that's the whole, it's a whole package. But, he's contrasting this, let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart. He's giving a contrast. He's not saying you can't have this one hairstyle, or you can't wear any jewelry, or you can't make yourself externally uh, you know, seek to be externally beautiful, attractive. He's, he's not forbidding that. He's giving a contrast and saying, let your focus be not your external appearance, but let your focus be your internal character, because that, he says, is an imperishable beauty. Everything on the outside is perishing. The outfit that you're wearing that's brand new and looks amazing today, let it hang in your closet for another 10 years, and it won't be, it'll perish. It will not be amazing 10 years from now. 20 years from now, it'll be back in again. But 10 years from now, you'll look really out of it. So clothing is perish. Gold, these are perish. Gold perishes. Um, your hairstyle, it, you know, it, our whole appearance, your face is not going to look the same at 70 as it does at 20. Uh, and so everything is dying about our external. So don't chase that. But, but focus instead on who you are internally. That's what will affect your unbelieving husband the most and will ultimately be a blessing to your believing husband as well. So what he's saying is don't flaunt external adornment. Don't bring hyper-focus. And the fact he's saying this to ladies, this is not some misogynistic kind of language, chauvinistic approach. Uh, You know, this is freedom. He is seeking to free the ladies of his day from these wives from being enslaved culturally to a standard of beauty that was put upon them in this culture and a standard of status, gold for sure, and probably extravagant hairstyles that took a long time to do and probably hired someone perhaps to do that for you. Those are the kinds of things people of status had. So he's not saying you can't have an expensive hairstyle or have some jewelry, but he's saying you don't draw your identity from your externals. You don't draw your identity, you draw your identity from knowing Jesus, and he produces in you a gentleness, a quietness, an imperishable, imperishable quality in your heart. He is freeing them from being enslaved, from taking their identity from their appearance and saying, focus on something else. Give the attention elsewhere, though giving attention to your external appearance is not sinful in and of, its, in and of itself at all. This temptation is alive today as well, this sort of enslaving 
It shows up, maybe not quite like this, but putting a picture up on Instagram, I'm not against Instagram, putting a picture of yourself on Instagram, and then checking like every 5, 10, 30 minutes to see how many likes you got on your cute outfit, okay? This is why my Instagram account is now dormant because I have no cute outfits, but when I get one, I'm back, folks. I'll be back, and you can go and like that, but that's enslaving. Do I have affirmation from that as opposed to Lord, let me serve you and in a way, and I'm not going to get likes. You can't image my character in a picture. I'm going to get likes, uh, Lord, as you work yourself through me. It's going to be a, a character that is a, a blessing to others. Focus on the internal adorning, the hidden person of the heart, imperishable beauty in God's sight. Well, what is it? He says it's a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, this is not a personality type. He's not saying be super introverted. If you are introverted and that's how God has wired you, it doesn't mean that, that you're instantly holy because you're doing this uh, at all. It's not talking about never saying a word. Listen, if you're going to do your husband good, you're going to have to say some words. Uh, so it's, uh, and sometimes words he doesn't want to hear. So it doesn't mean that you never say anything. Uh, it means to be like Jesus. And that's why, again, this language is not... Uh, it's not sexist language. Ladies, just be quiet over here. Just do your gentle thing. And here's how I know it's not sexist language, because this word for gentle in Greek is translated three other times in the New Testament, and two of them it applies to Jesus. Jesus says, Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn me, from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. What is Peter telling the wives? Imitate Jesus. He is gentle and humble in heart. Matthew 21, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. The Lord of glory, the powerful son of man, holy God and holy man comes to you gently riding on a donkey. His second return will not be gentle. It will be in fierce judgment with the sword. But his first coming is gentle. Wives, imitate Jesus is what he's saying. Here's the third instance. It's translated meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He's not picking on the ladies here. He's saying, ladies, in your marriage, put on Christ. Emulate Christ. And this is how the Lord wants you to relate to your husband. It's a call to live like Jesus and the gentle spirit is revealed when we're tested. And in 1 Peter, they're undergoing tests, significant tests. When you are tested, don't respond with harshness, hot-tempered, angry outbursts. But instead, respond with a spirit-generated, spirit, Holy Spirit-born gentleness. Galatians tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. By the way, that's for men and women to look like Jesus. But he's applying it here in the, to the ladies in their marriage. When it looks like a difficult time, that's when our spirits need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, the fruit he brings, to respond with gentleness. Even, even when we are mistreated, to respond with gentleness. Again, that's the teaching of Jesus throughout. Anybody can go buy some new clothes. Anybody can get a new hairstyle. Anybody can buy, buy some accessories. But only the Holy Spirit does the miraculous work we're reading about here. Empowering a woman to freely and joyfully respond gently in the midst of trial.
And nothing is more beautiful than trusting God and living from that kind of strength. Strength under control, that's gentleness. Meekness is strength under control. It's, it's, it's a dignified love of the other, orienting ourselves to Jesus and to loving and serving, in this case, her husband. Quiet spirit means calm, peaceful, tranquil. It's a restful heart that puts all confidence in Christ when tested. Again, a quiet spirit, if she's going to do him good, Proverbs 31, if she's going to do him good, she's going to have to speak words to him. She's going to have to at times correct her husband, rebuke her husband. But it is far more um, likely to win a response and to be heard when we bring even a correction to another person with a gentle spirit confident trust in God. Bring it with a, a, a quiet spirit, not a demanding rivalry up in your face, but the gentleness that trusts the Lord and loves the other enough to bring a caring, loving correction. That goes for husbands and wives as well. That goes the other way as well. But do you see that? It doesn't mean don't say anything. It means there is a calmness, a tranquility that God's got this. That's a profound work of God, and it's beautiful in a heart. A gentle and quiet spirit doesn't mean to be a doormat. They're equal to their husbands, these ladies. Um, and they're called to bring wisdom. They're called to do him good. But they're called to be filled with the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit as we cooperate with him. Now, there's two more things here. I do not have time to uh, really, you know, sort of draw them out like I have this first one. But I wanted to be careful with this first text uh, these first commands and try to explain what they're saying and what they're not saying uh, so that we all feel the edge of the Holy Spirit po poking our hearts, but we don't feel something that's not there. Number two, Christ-centered submission means hoping in God. So Christ-centered submission is a convincing witness, and it means hoping in God. That's verses five and six. This is how the holy women who hoped in God, there's the language, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children uh, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter paints a model of submission, Jesus, obviously, but now he's pointing to Sarah. She was um, Abraham's wife, uh, and he points to her. She was all, uh, held up as an example of someone with a gentle and quiet spirit who chose to affirm her husband's leadership, to follow him, into the unknown as the Lord spoke to them. Now, I looked this up because uh, I thought, wow, did he, did she call him Lord? What, what does that mean? Uh, there's one instance of her calling him Lord, and it's, a, it's kind of an interesting moment. It's a funny moment. It's, it's uh, maybe Sarah not at her best in the moment, uh, but it is when the angel comes to tell Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a child. And uh, they're very old, way beyond childbearing. And this is what Genesis 18 says. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. The, the angel was speaking to her husband, Abraham. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That is, she was postmenopausal. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So there she did. She spoke with him in a respectful way, and she turns it with faith. They named the child Laughter because she laughed when she heard the promise of God. But she does embrace and trust the promise of God and trust her husband in that as well. David Helm in his commentary on 1 Peter wrote this. He says, The laughter of Sarah can still be heard behind the curtain of our tents today. The voices of many women who hear these words on submission are likely to exclaim, You have got to be kidding me. That's absurd. God will keep his promises to me? And Peter says, Yes, God can be trusted. Women who give themselves to this pattern of life, though it is verse 6, he says, even if something frightening happens, will be those whom God meets in their hour of need. Those who entrust themselves to God will find that he will keep his word to them. And what has he promised them? Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, you have been born again to a living hope, and you shall receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You can trust God to keep his word, he writes. That is why Peter has been saying throughout this letter, entrust yourself to God, and God will go with you. That is the theme throughout. Entrust yourself to God. Here, even it says when something may be frightening. Well, what would be frightening? In this context, what would be frightening would be, What's going to happen to my marriage when I tell my husband I'm a believer? What's going to happen? Is he going to reject me? Is he going to leave me? I could be very vulnerable. I could be economically vulnerable, relationally vulnerable if he leaves me. Is he going to lie about me to save face so that he looks good in front of all of his uh, you know, other uh, polytheistic buddies down at the shop? Hey, we heard your wife's not following. She doesn't follow the gods anymore. Is he going to lie to say something about her? Is he going to slander her? This is what was happening to all the Christians. They're being slandered. They're being mocked. They're being rejected. And in some cases, we would assume wives are being left by their husbands. The cost of following Jesus. That's very frightening in this context. But the word here is Sarah hoped in God and God took care of her. She had the baby. Laughed at first, but had the baby. And God's going to, you can hope in him, he's going to take care of you as well. Christ-centered submission is saying, my hope is in God, is what it always says, no matter who we're submitting to. Lastly, there's something about honoring your wives that's communicated to husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, an immediate question If this is all you've heard the Bible say about marriage, if you're new, an immediate question is, wow, why is Peter saying all this to wives, setting a very high bar for them? And why is he saying, I mean, this is a bar too, but it's like one verse. So why is he saying this to husbands? Well, here's an idea that could be the case. Uh, The New Testament letters are situational. That means they're written to a situation. He's not just giving random marriage tips. He's pastorally helping people. So it's very likely that in these churches, there are many more women who've been converted than men. This is likely a real situation. It's not one lady has an unbelieving husband. It's probably a little bit more common. And so he's addressing a pastoral need here. That is 
certainly a possibility. Secondly, if you're new to the scripture and think this is imbalanced, I would just encourage you to go read Ephesians 5 because there he says something similar but much briefer to wives and says something very full to husbands about dying to themselves in sacrifice for their wives. So on balance, the New Testament, I think, gives equal number of verses to husbands and wives. I just need to say that because this confirms some false presuppositions that they had, that some unbelievers that maybe you have as a skeptic, that God is against women and this sort of thing. That's just not true. If you read the entire uh, New Testament, you would see a different, different verses to husbands and wives. The emphasis here is that wives are to freely submit in faith, but it's not a one-way calling. There's a calling to the husband as well. In Ephesians, it says he's actually to die to himself. It's not an easier calling. She is to respect and to submit. He is to die uh, and sacrificially. So it's a, it's a serious calling to the husbands as well. Here, the husbands are called to live with your wives in an understanding way, which, by the way, would totally uh, make any kind of abusive leadership would say that's, that's out. You can't live with compassion and understanding and mistreat your wife. Show honor to her. You can't honor your wife and mistreat her in the same way. So husbands are to honor and care for their wives. They're to do so recognizing the wife is a weaker vessel. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean she's intellectually weaker. It certainly doesn't mean she's spiritually weaker. She's the believer. He's not in this context. Um, it probably means... I mean, I don't know what it means, but I think what it means, and I've read others who say the same, it probably just recognizes the obvious that he is physically, on average, this isn't true in every marriage, but typically the husband is physically uh, stronger than the wife, and he certainly in this context had more, more social power than she did. And uh, sadly, that's still true in our context as well. Uh, sometimes where in the world he has more social power. And so he is to leverage his physical strength to live with her in an understanding way, to use his strength to serve her, to use his strength to protect her, to leverage his social power to make things better for his wife, to care for her, to love her, to be understanding of what she's going through, and to sort of be the, the one who takes the shots, is willing to take the brunt and take the shots to care for her and shield her. It's a wonderful, love, beautiful picture of love, of how Jesus loves the church. It's not saying women are weak. That's not the primary idea. The primary idea is husbands, recognize you've been given strength and use it to serve and care for your wife. She's your equal partner, and she's heir with you in the grace of life. So recognize she's your equal. And then this is a threat I don't remember ever reading anywhere else in the Bible. It could be there, but I don't remember this saying that if you don't live with her in an understanding way, do that so that your prayers may not be hindered. He's actually saying, you're not going to have your prayers answered in the same way if you are not living with your wife in an understanding way. Now, how is this possible? This picture of marriage here is, wow. What lady's going to do this? What man is able to do this? Well, here's the good news that there is forgiveness for all of us where we've failed. Uh, wives failing in respect and submission, husbands failing in care, sacrifice, love, uh, living in an understanding way is Peter's language. The good news is the father looks down and sees Jesus who lived perfectly, always submitted 
perfectly. Jesus lived this for us, and, and, and the Father takes the, the obedience of the Son and credits it to our account. So God relates to all of us as if we have lived this out 100%, because Jesus did, and he credits us that righteousness. Now, where we fail, and we do, we must ask forgiveness. We repent and seek to live a different way, and we take steps of obedience, starting with asking forgiveness not only of the Lord, but of, ladies, your husband. If you've been unsubmissive, unsupportive, disrespectful, you ask his forgiveness. Husbands, if you have not lived with your wife in an understanding way, if you haven't honored her above yourself, sacrificed for her in a loving way, then you ask her forgiveness. Um, And then you can grow together as a spouse. One way we grow is to be able to talk about these things. I'm going to leave you with a couple of questions here that you can talk about. Ladies, ask your husband, how can I grow in respect? How can I grow in trusting Jesus so that what you see from me is a gentleness in a quiet spirit, that kind of confidence, this trusting in God that he's got me. How could I respond with faith in the Lord so that I would be having a gentle and quiet spirit? Husbands, ask your wife, how can I grow in living in an understanding way and honoring you? Are there ways you feel dishonored? Are there ways you feel unseen that I'm not paying attention? Are there ways you feel like I'm not relating with compassion? That's what this all means. We can ask one another, and help one another. What is our marriage, our mission on the margins? Well, it's living an entirely different kind of life so that our marriages reflect something so countercultural, the love of Jesus on display, that people cannot help but notice something's going on that is different. The evangelical church today, we want a culture war, and what we want to do is rant and rave against the culture and their approach to marriage. And we should be faithful citizens who act for the common good. We should vote. We should seek to see justice and laws that do protect marriage. And so I'm all for that. But the easy thing is to fire off a rant on social media about how bad the world is in their view of marriage and how their marriage and sex is all going to pot because of the bad people in the world. That's easy. What is difficult is living this out. It's much easier to fire off a social media rant. But to live this way requires us to depend upon God. And it it requires us to say judgment begins in the house of the Lord. If we're going to win the culture, it's going to be by living a different life that is compelling, by living marriages that are different, by husbands acting different towards their wives, wives acting differently towards their husbands. This sort of self-sacrifice, this death to self, this new life of the Spirit making us loving and respectful and gentle and caring, something that, that is miraculous that can only happen by the Lord. It's going to be providing an alternative. It's going to be when the church, when we look at ourselves and say, let's live a better story, the story of the scripture. There's a place to be prophetic and critique the darkness of the world. But I believe when I read a book like this, by far the emphasis is on looking at ourselves and saying we will represent Christ and the church when we live in a way that is categorically different. And that's how the early marginalized church changed the world. 
That's how they did it. It wasn't by overturning the Roman government. That's not how they did it. The way they did it was by living in such a different way that it caught on and it spread. And culture shifted as righteousness began to reign through the people of God in the places that he put them. So don't hear what I'm not saying and what Caleb didn't say last week either. It's not that we're apolitical or that we don't care about the culture or we're not concerned about what's coming out of Hollywood or what's coming out of politics or music or any other types of culture, all kinds of art. It doesn't say that we don't care about that. But it just says, let's be responsible for where we are and ask for God's grace to change us so that someone taps us on the shoulder and says, what's different about you people? That is the whole emphasis of the book, that the gospel shines through people on the margins by doing counterintuitive things like submitting to a husband who may not even be a believer, loving a wife who may not have any interest in your God, or as two Christians walking together and beautifully exemplifying the love of Christ and the church by the grace of God. May we infiltrate our world, our spaces, our, our places of business, our families, our extended families with this kind of witness. And God help us because we need His grace. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.